Welcome to the Antioch Podcast. We're a justice-minded Christian church in beautiful Bend, Oregon, seeking and celebrating the reconciliation of all things. May the word of Christ dwell in you fully and give you peace. The scripture that's reading this morning is from the book of Psalms, chapter 15. Lord, who may dwell in your sacred tent? Who may live on your holy mountain? The one whose walk is blameless, who does what is righteous, who speaks the truth from their heart, whose tongue utters no slander, who does no wrong to the neighbor and casts no slur on others, who despises a vile person but honors those who fear the Lord, who keeps an oath even when it hurts and does not change their mind, who lends money to the poor without interest, who does not accept a bribe against the innocent. Whoever does these things will never be shaken. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks, Peter. Thank you, Gary. Morning, church. It is so good to see you all today. I am really glad that you're with us. So good to have you with us, John. And uh, I can't wait for this trip, and I hope uh, a lot of you are able to join us this fall. Um, this morning we are looking at Psalm 15. If you'd like to turn there with me in your Bible, and with just five verses and uh, just over a hundred words, Psalm 15 is one of the shortest in all of the, the Psalms. It's small, but it asks a big question, and so we're going to dive right in. Verse one: Lord, who may dwell in your sacred tent? Who may live on your holy mountain? So what are we talking about here? First thing we need to know in this psalm is that a sacred tent is a reference to the Hebrew tabernacle. The tabernacle was this huge meeting tent that God had instructed Moses to build while the Israelites were wandering in the desert. And the story is found in the book of Exodus after God rescues them out of slavery in Egypt. He wants a place where his people can go to encounter his presence in a personal way. And so God instructs Moses to build this giant tent called a tabernacle, and it serves as God's dwelling place on earth in that time. Uh, what you'll notice as you read through the scriptures is that there is a ridiculous amount of detail and attention that's given to the design and construction of the tabernacle. In fact, over 50 chapters of the Bible are dedicated to describing the tabernacle. And <clears throat> compared to, we have two chapters that describe the creation of the universe. <laughs> 50 dedicated to what we have. One uh, Bible scholar I read says that more space is devoted to the tabernacle in the Bible than to any other single subject. So something to pay attention to. Um, and you know this if you've ever attempted to read the Bible through from beginning to end. Uh, some of you started a new Bible reading plan to read through the Bible this year. We're at the end of January, so you are just about at this point. Meaning you know that Genesis is super interesting, the first half of Exodus is super exciting, and then you get to around Exodus 25, 
and you get to these long, boring, detailed lists of blueprints, of designs, really specific shapes and sizes and colors of everything that makes up the tabernacle, the kind of wood, the kind of fabric, the kind of leather. And most of us, if we're honest, when you get to that point, we'd rather just read the phone book. (laughs) For the kids in the room, the phone book was this thing. Once a year, somebody would drive by and throw at your house, and then you would keep it for a year and use it mostly to kill spiders or level furniture or something like that. Uh, The point is, what makes reading about the tabernacle interesting is when you realize that every single element of its construction and design is meant to draw the ancient Israelites and modern readers back to the Garden of Eden. The tabernacle was set up to be a portable Garden of Eden, a, a replication of God's original dwelling place on earth. And so the idea is that when ancient worshipers would enter this earthly tabernacle, you're all of a sudden supernaturally inhabiting two places at the same time. You're both in heaven and earth simultaneously. And so every single meticulous detail of the tabernacle's design represents something that would draw people back to Eden from its three-tiered structure, which would represent the Hebrew concept of how the garden was set up, from the cherubim that were carved and guarded the entrance to the furniture that each represented different elements of life in the garden. And so the point is that while it may not be the most exciting stuff to read about, God's meticulous attention to detail and design in the tabernacle actually shows us something revolutionary about who God is and what God is like. We've talked about this before, but how many of you have ever heard the idea that because of God's holiness, he is unable to stand the presence of sin? Have you heard something like that before? Because God is holy, sinful people are not able to dwell in his presence. Well, what the tabernacle does is take that well-known Christian phrase and flip it over. And it exposes it as a half-truth at the best. The tabernacle shows us that God, in his holiness and in his love, longs to dwell near to his people. And what we see is God moving not away from sinful humanity, but towards them. So God's holiness doesn't keep him from getting close to sin. In the Bible, we actually see God doing the opposite, drawing near to sinful people, which is a game changer when it comes to how we see God and how we think about what it means to be the people of God. So that's the tabernacle, the tent of meeting In verse 1. Next, he asks, who may live on your holy mountain? So if the sacred tent is a reference to the tabernacle, the holy mountain is a reference to Mount Zion in Israel where the Hebrew temple was located. So after God brought his people out of Egypt and then through the years in the wilderness, eventually he led them into the promised land, into the land that he had designated to be theirs. And since they were no longer a portable operation, 
they no longer needed a tent of meeting that they could set up and tear down as they moved. And so God's people built the temple. An amazing architectural and construction marvel. This giant, permanent dwelling place that served really the same purpose as the tabernacle. A place where people could go to enter in to the presence of God. A place where you could go and simultaneously be on heaven, be in heaven and on earth at the same time. It's a place where people would go to offer sacrifices, to pray, to worship, and to praise the God who had created them, who had rescued them out of Egypt, and who had delivered them into the promised land. Okay, so in verse 1 of Psalm 15, we have references to the tabernacle and the temple, these two physical locations in the history of Israel that have constituted the house of God, the place where the God of heaven took up residence on earth. And within both the tabernacle and the temple, you have priests, priests whose job it was to oversee all the activities that went on within these places of worship. They would oversee the sacrifices, the prayers, the songs, the offerings, making sure that all of the worshipers were observing the instructions that God had given for how his people ought to worship, how his people ought to approach him in these sacred spaces. One of the tools that the priests would be equipped with to lead the people in worship was this very book of Psalms. This book of prayers and songs and Hebrew poems that were designed to give God's people a vocabulary and a posture for prayer. And specifically, something like Psalm 15 would have served most likely as what would would have been called an entrance liturgy. It would have been used as people are showing up for worship, coming to the front gates of the temple or the tabernacle, and the priests would use a psalm like Psalm 15 to call people into worship and to prepare them to enter into the presence of God. So we do some liturgical prayers in our services here on Sunday. Some of those prayers include responsive uh, readings or call and response kind of prayers where the worship leader will say one thing and the congregation will say another. Uh, It's likely that that's how Psalm 15 was used by ancient Israel as well. You'd be met at the temple gates or the tabernacle entrance and a priest would greet you and would come and say, Lord, who may dwell in your sacred tent and who may live on your holy mountain? And then you and your family as would-be worshipers would respond to verse one by reciting verses two through five, which we'll get to in just a moment. But before we move on to verse two, I, I wanna just pause and call your attention to one thing. And I want you to notice that in verse one, Um, there's a question being asked. And who's it being asked of? Lord. It's a question to God. This is a prayer in the form of a question. Is it okay to question God? Isn't the Bible supposed to be a book of answers? (laughs) The Psalms teach us to pray our questions. By my count, there's over 147 questions throughout the 150 Psalms. Some of them are rhetorical questions. 
Some of them are directed at others, at the surrounding nations. Sometimes the psalmist writes a question or poses a question to himself. But most of the questions are questions for God. The most famous question in all the Psalms is in Psalm 22. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Jesus prayed the Psalms. Jesus gives us a vocabulary for prayer that includes deep, hard, honest, uncensored, unedited questions for God. I recently came across an article by an Old Testament scholar named Michael Rhodes, and what he did was pulled up the top 25 most popular worship songs in the United States, and he compared the lyrics of the top 25 to the lyrics of the Psalms. It's a very fascinating thing to see what he found, but here's the last observation he shared in the article I read. Maybe, most devastatingly, in the top 25, not a single question is ever posed to God. When we sing the top 25, we don't ask God anything. So before we move on, it's not the main point of the psalm or of the sermon, but I want you to hear today, what do you do with all your questions for God? The psalms say you pray them. You bring your raw, honest, unedited, uncensored questions to God in prayer. And I would just say, see what happens. See what happens. This is an invitation central to the biblical understanding of the relationship God desires to have with his people. He invites us as an act of worship and trust to bring our deepest and hardest questions to him. So verse one is a question. It's a question for God, but it was likely asked, like I said, as an entrance liturgy by the priest to those who were approaching the temple or tabernacle for worship. So the priest says verse one, and then the congregation, so to speak, says verses two through five, which say this. The one whose walk is blameless, the one who does what's righteous, who speaks truth from their heart, whose tongue utters no slander, who does no wrong to a neighbor and casts no slur on others, who despises a vile person but honors those who fear the Lord, who keeps an oath even when it hurts and does not change their mind, who lends money to the poor without interest, and who does not accept a bribe against the innocent. So in the context of this psalm, the psalmist asks the question of God, and then God gives this answer, which the people then would recite, about who it is that is able to enter into his presence and dwell there. Now, the truth is that as modern evangelical Protestant Christians, this sounds pretty strange to us, pretty far from our worshiping experience, because no one is guarding the door to the church when we show up on Sunday mornings. And in our day, pretty much every Christian church I know of would say that everyone is welcome to join. Even like the most self-righteous, legalistic, judgmental Christian churches don't have bouncers out front <laughs> with a checklist making sure you meet all of the marks, right? And part of the reason for that is that because um, it, 
it varies from some Christian traditions and denominations, but for most uh, forms of Christianity today, there's nothing magical about the church building itself. Because of who Jesus is and what he's done, uh, our temple is no longer located in a building, especially not like a weird concrete square from the 60s. Um, We don't even know where this thing came from. The city has no record. Kip pulled up aerial photos from the 60s, and one year it wasn't here, and one year it was, and we don't know what it was. Um, And so for Christians, we... We gather together for worship, and sometimes it's in a building we call the church, but we understand that the church uh, is the people, is the congregation. This is simply the building. Um, Now, there's confusion about this. There always has been. I've been thrown off (laughs) ever since I was a middle schooler growing up at First Baptist Church. Um, Why do we have to take our hats off then? (laughs) If the earth is the Lord's and everything in it. When I show up for church, why do I have to <laughs> take my hat off? Um, it would have been nice if they would have just said it was, it's good manners. But when they say, well, it's the house of God, I'm like, well, so am I. And so is everything. You know what I mean? So um, we do get thrown off by this idea that only certain kinds of people are able to enter in to the place where God's presence dwells. But in the biblical story, this obviously wasn't always the case. Um, For the Hebrew worshipers of Yahweh who first used psalms as an entrance liturgy, this didn't sound weird or legalistic to them or something. They didn't assume that just anybody could show up and enter the temple as they were. And so when the priest asked, who may enter the temple of God, the worshipers would respond by reciting this checklist of virtues found in the next three verses. And depending how you break up these verses, there's between six and 12 characteristics listed here. So let's look at them again. I'm going to share with you how our very own Pete Santucci translates these verses in his rendering of the Psalms, Everyday Psalms. Who may enter the presence of God? The one at whom no one can point a blaming finger, who is fair and good, whose words are honest, not false and flattering, who never speaks badly of anyone, who is a helpful neighbor, who always supports friends, who hates deeds which should be hated, who loves those who love Yahweh, who keeps every promise no matter the cost, who is consistent and trustworthy, who shares generously and freely, who can't be bought. Okay, so this is the kind of person God says may enter his presence, or in other words, this is the kind of person God is looking for. This is a description of the community that God desires his people to be. And if I think about it that way, it's one thing. If I think about it as an entrance exam to gain access to the presence of God, I don't know about you, it doesn't look too good for me. (laughs) Remember in uh, Groundhog Day, when she's listing off her her description of a perfect man, and after each thing, Phil goes, me, me, me. This is exactly like that, except the opposite. (laughs) And that's the point of it, at least in part. 
that this psalm serves in a similar way to how we use our prayer of confession that we prayed just moments ago. It serves as a tool of self-examination and asks us to pay attention to our lives. And not just the things that we've done, but you'll notice the things that we've thought, the things that we've felt, the things that we've said, and compare and contrast how we've been living this week with what God desires for how his people to live. And a prayer of confession, of course, not only exposes the places of sin in our lives, but it also gives us a way to deal with them. And so at the entrance, when you were asked the question of Psalm 1, and you responded, or with verse 1 of Psalm 15, and you responded with verses 2 through 15, every single worshiper would be convicted of the fact that as I stand in this moment, I am not worthy to enter the presence of God. So then you would turn around and go home. No. So then the priest would say, of course not. That's why you're here. Not because you think you're perfect, but because you know you're not. And so you offer a sacrifice. Your sins would be dealt with, and then you could go in and sit in the presence of God. Enter into the life-giving loving communion with the God who made you. So again, we see the holiness and love of God on display and that he is determined to make a way for his people dwell with him. He refuses to let our sin stand between us and him. Because what's the right answer to the question of verse one? Lord, who may dwell in your presence? who may climb and live on your holy mountain. Well, yeah, there's a description here, but the implication is no one, not one of us, not one of us is able to say, yeah, me, 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 that sounds about right. No one can dwell in God's presence unless God makes a way. It's kind of like asking, what kind of person can live on the sun? (laughs) who may dwell on the face of the sun? And God's holy presence is brighter and hotter than the surface of the sun. The answer is no one can live on the sun. Unless there was a person who somehow was made up of the exact fiery substance as the sun. If there was a person who somehow their physical makeup was the exact same combination of heat and chemicals and gases and elements as the sun, then that person, theoretically, could live there. So similarly, what kind of person can dwell in the presence of God? The kind of person who's made of the exact same stuff as God. Listen to how later on the Apostle John would introduce Jesus into the biblical story. He was with God in the beginning. Through him all things were made. Without him nothing was made that has been made. In him was life, and that life was the light of all mankind. 
The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. What kind of man can dwell in the presence of God? A man who's made from the same fiery stuff as God. There's only one human being who's ever lived who's able to read Psalm 15 and say, me, 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 that sounds like me. <laughs> and of course, it's Jesus himself. The one human who lived blamelessly, who lived righteously, who was without sin and perfectly loved God and loved his neighbor as he loved himself. He is the only human who had compatible glory and brightness to God. And so the surprise twist in this story as we move from the ancient tabernacle and temple into the incarnation of God in the person of Jesus is that in Christ himself, all of the elements that went into this system of worship, sacrifice, priests, offerings, temples, tabernacles, every single part of that system, the writers of the New Testament go to great lengths to show us that Jesus himself is the ultimate fulfillment of every single one of them. So Jesus is introduced to New Testament readers as the new temple, as the new tabernacle. The place where God's presence dwells on earth is no longer a tent and it's no longer a building. It's a person. He is the one in whom the presence of God dwells. He is where we go if we want to look into the face of God. He is where we go to stand in the presence of God and to share in the life-giving communion we were made for. Jesus is the new temple. He's also the new priest, the mediator between God and humanity, the one who stands in the gap and communicates to God on behalf of the people and communicates to the people on behalf of God. Jesus is our new high priest, the great one who intercedes. And not only that, but he's also become our sacrifice as well. Hebrews chapter 10, listen to how the author <clears throat> makes sense of all this. Talking about back in the temporal tabernacle days, day after day, every priest stands and performs his religious duties. Again and again, he offers the same sacrifice which can never take away sins. But... When this priest had offered for all time one sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God. And since that time, he waits for his enemies to be made his footstool. For by one sacrifice, Jesus has made perfect forever those who are being made holy. Jesus came to live Psalm 15 for us. And somehow, by becoming our temple, by becoming our priest, by becoming our sacrifice, not only does he grant us unlimited access to the presence of God, something that the Hebrew people couldn't even imagine, not only does he grant us unlimited access to the presence of God, but he invites us even deeper. 
that somehow he opens the door for everyone. Hebrews 10 continues, Therefore, brothers and sisters, since we have confidence to enter the most holy place by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way opened for us through the, the curtain, that is his body, and since we have a great high priest over the house of God, let us draw near to God with a sincere heart and with the full assurance of faith that faith brings, having our hearts sprinkled to cleanse us from a guilty conscience and having our bodies washed with pure water. So here's the dilemma when it comes to a passage like this. When we read the Old Testament backwards, Christologically, through the lens of what Jesus has done for us in his life, death, and resurrection, I bet if I gave you a pop quiz at the beginning of this sermon, I could have said, how many of us fulfill Psalm 15? We would all say no. Do we know one person who has? You would all say yes, Jesus, okay? We know that the Christian answer, and in this case, the right answer, is Jesus. He's the only one who may dwell in the presence of God as he is. He's the one who's blameless, the one who's righteous, the only human who's ever lived a perfectly moral and ethical life that would qualify him for entrance into the dwelling place of God. And we know this gospel that we have been united to Christ I no longer live, but Christ Jesus lives in me. And so there is a man who stands in the presence of God today, and I am in him. And he is in me. And his unlimited, unqualified access to the Father has now been given to me and given to you and all those who are in Christ. And our acceptance before God is no longer based on our works, our righteousness, our performance, or our record, but it's based on Christ's, which has been given to us. And here's the temptation, is to say, great, so I don't have to worry about verses two through five then. Because <laughs> all that was supposed to do was expose that I'm not worthy of the presence of God. So I simply get to cling to Jesus. Yes, and. Did you notice how that first Hebrews passage ended? For by one sacrifice, he has made perfect those who are being made holy. We are continued to be invited to live in two places at the same time. On one hand, we have been made perfect. On the other hand, we are being made holy. On one hand, Christ's righteousness has been imparted to us. And so we now no longer live, but he lives in us and our identity is wrapped up in our union with him. And we are invited to follow him in faithful obedience, in growing into the kind of people that God created and redeemed us to be. So following verses two through five isn't what we rely on to gain access into God, but rather than it becomes a life-giving, joyful invitation that I want my life to be one that pleases God. Not because I have to, because I want to. Because of the spirit of Jesus that now lives in me, I long to become the kind of person that God longs for me to be. 
I want to be somebody who's blameless, who's righteous, who doesn't commit crimes of injustice and oppression and discrimination against the poor. I want to be someone who speaks the truth. I want to be someone of a pure heart, not so I can justify myself, but because I have been justified and because this is the kind of people that the world needs most. And so I think for us today, Psalm 15 is less about qualifications for worship and more about a description of the kind of community that God longs to create in his son. And its ethics are precisely those that the spirit uses to build and maintain this countercultural community. After all, Psalm 15 essentially invites those who wish to worship the Lord to follow Jesus in learning how to love God and love their neighbors as themselves. So who may enter the presence of God? The answer used to be no one. Today, it's everyone. Jesus is the only way to the Father. And his way is open to everyone. Amy's going to come and lead us to the table this morning. And I want you to think about, as we come to this table to receive bread and cup, we come being given this new identity that, yes, the temple is no longer a place. The temple is Jesus but we've been united with Jesus. And so we, in a very real sense, are now the body of Christ, as Paul would say. And when we come to the bread and the cup, we receive the body of Christ. So what's happening this morning and week after week as we come to this table is that we come as the body of Christ to receive the body of Christ. In communion, our identity, our true identity, is given to us again. By taking part by grace and with thankfulness in this meal, we become who we are. Temple of the Holy Spirit, the body of Jesus, his physical representation in a world that desperately needs his life and love and salvation. Lord Jesus Christ, we are so immensely grateful that you have done everything necessary for us to enter in and to thrive in your kingdom here today and forever. God, we continue to repent of our self-righteousness of our vain attempts to try to justify ourselves or earn your love and favor. And instead, we humble ourselves again. We confess our sins. And we acknowledge that we come before you with this new identity. Those who live in your son and are called and sent to join him on his mission in this world, to bring peace, healing, reconciliation in our city and to the ends of the earth for the sake of your name. We receive you 
and our new identity again this morning. In Jesus' name.